So we're back in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and we have been kind of doing a series looking at the third section, which we're calling Christian Spirituality. And we started looking at the means of grace. We looked at uh, the Word of God, hearing the Word, reading the Word, preaching the Word. Then we did uh, a look at baptism and what that means in our context. And now for the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper, which the larger catechism devotes a significant amount of time to. Uh, About 10 to 12 questions are devoted to the Lord's Supper because it is an important part of our ecclesiology. And we're just going to be dealing with question 168 today, which asks simply, what is the Lord's Supper? And the answer the catechism gives is that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine, According to the appointment of Jesus, his death is showed forth, and they that worthily communicate feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace, have their union and communion with him confirmed, testify and renew their thankfulness and engagement to God and their mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us knowledge of you and the gospel and your word, uh, the word written, read, preached. Lord, we thank you also for the way we see your word and the symbols that you have instituted to help us grow in our faith. Would you help us to better understand this wonderful gift you've given to us, namely the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so like uh, the last series we looked at, we'll save uh, questions, comments for the end. I think we should have a decent amount of time. So if you have something, uh, take note of it, and hopefully we can get to it at the end. So first, let's consider uh, what is the Lord's Supper? Okay, so it starts off saying the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament. Okay, we want to look at first at this word sacrament. The word sacrament comes um, from the Latin Uh, which is really to mean a mystery. That's what the word means, a mystery. And the mysteries are supposed to be mysteries that relate physical, real, tangible world things to heavenly things. They're things that connect heaven and earth, as it were. And in in a broad sense, almost everything in life is sacramental, in that every physical thing points us to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So in a sense, the stars are sacramental in that, in a way, they point us to God's glory, his divinity, and power. But when we're talking about the capital S, the sacraments, we are talking about mysteries that point to heavenly realities that are specifically meant to grow our faith. That is, they are specifically, we use the term, means of grace, ways that we grow in our relationship with Christ. That's what means of grace are, ways to grow in our relationship with Christ. And the means of grace are all fundamentally communicative. Us speaking to God in prayer and praise, and God speaking to us first in his word, but another way God speaks to us is through the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are often called ordinances, meaning they are specifically ordained by Christ for our spiritual benefit. Now, the Roman Catholics and Anglicans recognize seven sacraments, Because there's something there that they're recognizing that, for instance, they would say marriage is a sacrament, and Paul does call marriage a mystery that points us to the relationship of Christ and the church. 
But it's not a means of grace, and it's not an ordinance, because it's not an ordained means of worship. That is, it's not something that is directly communicating between us and Christ. It reflects spiritual realities, but it's not given as an ordinance of worship. We recognize the two ordinances, means of grace, sacraments for worship, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And sacraments are metaphors. Uh, If you look at Luke 22.20 here, it says, Likewise also, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So notice the language there. That's a metaphor. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. It's not a simile. He doesn't say, this cup is like the New Testament in my blood. That's metaphorical use, right? Like you learn very early in elementary school the difference between a metaphor, which is making a comparison uh, by substituting one thing for another, versus a simile, which is saying something is similar. Now, ultimately, metaphors and similes are pretty much doing the same thing, But a metaphor is a much stronger way to say it. A metaphor is a much more powerful and acute way of representing the similarity. And metaphors are chosen to represent the analogical relationship between the sign and the thing being signified. Okay, the sign and the thing signified. There's three types of relationships you could have, and we want to get this right when it comes to the symbols, bread, wine, eating them, drinking, and what is being communicated to us about Christ and grace. You can have um, a univocal relationship in that the sign and the thing signified are exactly the same. And that's the mistake that uh, Roman Catholics make, and to an extent Lutherans make, when they take this metaphor not as a metaphor. When he says this cup is the New Testament in my blood, they say that is univocal. They're saying the exact same thing. The cup actually is the New Testament in Christ's actual blood. But neither is it um, an equivocal relationship, that ultimately there's no real connection. It's just sort of arbitrarily chosen that bread and wine would be these signifiers. But no, the metaphor is given to represent an analogical relationship, namely that there's an analogy between what the bread and the wine symbolize, which corresponds to a reality about Christ. There's an analogical relationship being signified by this metaphor where he says, the cup is the New Testament in my blood. Now, how does this work? Here's the next part of the answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, his death is showed forth, and they that worthily communicate feed upon his body and blood, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So notice the metaphors continued. Um, Not only does he first say the cup is his blood, but um, they that feed upon his body and blood. The metaphors being continued here, where feeding on the bread and wine is to be said as feeding on Christ's body and blood in a metaphorical sense. Um, Let's consider the way this sacrament, this mystery, this symbolic mystery is working. Okay, so first the sacramental symbol, we're told... Christ's death is showed forth, okay? So the point of these symbols is to show forth, to display, to communicate Christ's death. And how is it communicating Christ's death? Well, the symbols fit very well. The bread can be taken for a body that is broken, that is crushed. Wheat being the main sustaining grain the uh, people of that time partook of. Representing um, life, health, nourishment of the body. Christ's broken body and wine very fittingly represents blood. 
similar in color, similar in viscosity. You have these symbols which well represent Christ's dying. And then you have a sacramental action, which is to feed on Christ's body and blood metaphorically. Right? If the bread and wine are representing Christ's body and blood, to feed on them in the metaphors, to feed on Christ's body and blood. But the big thing here is we want to know what's the point of this, right? How does the Lord's Supper help us? How does the Lord's Supper bless us? Well, we're going to see about five different ways that we benefit by the Lord's Supper. By partaking in this metaphorical, sacramental, mysterious act, where we're taking these natural things like bread and wine, feeding on them in a way that's communicating Christ's death, we derive significant benefit. Now, the first benefit, it says here, is that those that worthily communicate, okay, that's going to go, we're going to go more into depth in that worthily part um, in a later lecture. But those that communicate, feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Spiritual nourishment, think of um, when you receive physical nourishment, it's health, you're contented, you're satisfied, satiated. In your spiritual nourishment, your soul is satisfied. Your soul hungers are uh, contented. You rest well. And to grow in grace is simply to grow in greater relationship with Jesus Christ. Growing in grace is growing in knowing and enjoying Jesus more. Let's consider uh, 1 Corinthians 11 here. It says, For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After that same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Um, and again, I'll just make a note. The reason I'm using the King James in these is because the original notes appended to the catechism were from the King James Version. And therefore, it's easier to pick up what was the intent of the authors when you're working off the same Bible translation as them. And it's easier, easier to not replace all the Bible notes. So those are just two reasons for that, just so you know. So the key in this, in this sacramental participation, is this word remembrance. To do these things in remembrance of Christ. Two times that word pops up there, as we're showing forth Christ's death. And the things we're remembering in this passage, it says we're remembering his death, and with the cup, the new covenant in his blood. I think we often miss this New Testament piece. The word testament in the New Testament is the same word that's used for a will. So there's a slight difference between the New Covenant and the New Testament. The New Testament is referring more to the benefits of the inheritance that comes to us by Christ's blood. Whereas the New Covenant is more focusing on the relationship we have with God, the Testament is, refer is referring to the benefits and blessings we have, but particularly will receive in, in eternity. And Christ's blood being shed reminds us that there is a New Testament, a will that's taking place, and we're told this in Hebrews chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, 
He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Part of the significant reminders for us when we're thinking of Christ's blood being shed is being reminded that the will has gone into effect now and we're the recipients of the will, namely an eternal inheritance. You can think of the two great blessings of the gospel are really summarized by these two, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And these are the blessings we're reminded of in the Lord's Supper, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. The New Testament, the new covenant, the new will has come into effect because Christ's blood has been shed. So we who receive, receive spiritual nourishment, growth and grace. The second blessing is to have their union and communion with Christ confirmed. So that is, to be confirmed in this is meaning um, to be encouraged in it. Um, to, for it to be a reminder, something that um, increases our perception. To have their union and communion with Christ confirmed. Okay, so we're encouraged and reminded of these two realities for the believer. That we have union with Christ and we have communion with Christ. And that's why we use the term communion often to refer to the Lord's Supper. Because this is one of the preeminent blessings in it. Consider 1 Corinthians 10.16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And if you think about it, the word communion means common union. That is the union that we have in common. So just as the bread and wine become united to our bodies in a literal sense, so our union with Christ is, um, we're reminded of this because we are truly a part of Christ's body. Truly a part, attached to the head. We are united with him, and so we can have a common union with Christ. We share the same spirit. We're a part of the same body with Christ being the head. An amazing benefit that we are united to him by faith, made partakers of all the blessings that come to us in Christ. And so these symbols remind us of our union, but also of our communion. All the parts of our bodies have communion with one another. They are sharing the head through the spinal cord. All the parts of the body are sharing in a fellowship, a united activity. And we enjoy communion, that is relationship, fellowship, coordinated activity and enjoyment with Christ. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of both our union with him, but also the communion and relationship we have with him. Um, In a way, I find actually a helpful comparison of this is if you think of the way in which um, sexual intimacy and marriage both reminds us of our union and communion spouse to spouse. When you partake of that act, you're reminded of the exclusive covenant commitment that you have. You're reminded that you are united to each other in a real relationship that is different than all other relationships. It reminds you of this is a privilege of the union that you have. But secondly, it's also an act of communion. It reminds you of your love and desire and passion towards one another. And when partaken of rightly, it really affects both these things powerfully in your mind. 
to remind you of that exclusive, the exclusivity of the relationship and the beauty and joy of the relationship. And in a similar way, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we have this exclusive, privileged access to God in Christ because we have a united relationship with him, but also the ability to enjoy Christ, to enjoy his blessings and his love and his benefits. It's interesting that um, we were talking yesterday in small group about how the Jewish custom was every year at the Passover was to read the Song of Songs. This was their habit because they took the Song of Songs as a picture of the relationship of Christ and his people, the passionate love God and his people have for one another, and they considered the Passover the most fitting time for this because that's when God's love for Israel was most clear in redeeming them from the bondage of Egypt, of rescuing them and taking them to a good land. And so when we think of that love displayed in that magnificent song declaring God's love for us and our love for him, it's such a fitting reminder that it encapsulates communion, the Lord's Supper, because it really is a time of love where we are giving our love back to God and being reminded of his love for us. Thirdly, they that worthily communicate testify and renew their thankfulness to God, right? Jesus, or Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, do this, quoting Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering is such an important act here. And what is um, a remembering, but depending on the memory, it's often going to be a thankful, joyful memory. When you think of good things other people have done for you, when you think of someone who's shown you lots of love, maybe you had loving parents, or when your spouse first, um, really in marriage, showed their love for you, you remember that with a joyful remembrance. And our remembering what Christ has done for us ought to provoke a thankfulness in our hearts towards him. Like when I remember that my, when my wife first said yes to marrying me, the joy that wells up in my heart to think of that, the remembrancing leads to a thankfulness and it renews and reminds us of how thankful we ought to be to Christ. A thankful, um, recurring reminder to remember and give thanks. Perhaps we might even think of it like uh, when we have annual holidays how many of the annual holidays we have are given to remind us to reflect rightly on specific events. So you might even think something similar um, like Memorial Day or Veterans Day where we're being reminded of the sacrifices of life given to help us have freedom and uh, liberty and joy in life. And when we're partaking in maybe those ceremonies that accompany the events of Memorial Day, There's a soberness, but also a thankful joy. There's both um, a seriousness in the contemplation of the sacrifice, but then also a joy in uh, just the beauty of the sacrifice and the results. And I think the Lord's Supper is a similar effect. We are remembering Christ's death and that cost and sacrifice, which means there ought to be a seriousness and a sobriety to it, but then considering the effects of that death, the benefits of it, there then ought to be also a joy and a thanksgiving. Uh, There's a a, a time, I think it's in the book of Ezra, when they're, uh, I have my dates a bit off, might have been Nehemiah, but there's a a point where Israel's gathered together, um, commemorating something to do with the temple, and it says that um, they um, rejoiced with great joy and then fell on their faces in worship. That at the same time, there was a rejoicing 
and a, a humble lowness. And the Lord's Supper marries those two realities of the um, serious joy at the same time. Renewing our thankfulness. Fourthly, they that worthily communicate testify and renew their engagement to God. That is, we're reminded of our relationship with God, that exclusive covenant loyalty. And I, I, I feel like maybe a more helpful word here would be our allegiance to God. That we are his people and he is our God. Now, in an interesting way, we're reminded of this in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul tells the church, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can't be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. That is, again, as in marriage, the commitment is exclusive. There's one relationship to be communed in. There's one table to be partaken of, and that is this participation in Christ's death and resurrection cannot go hand in hand with participation in pagan ceremonies and false worships. That is, the supper reminds us that our exclusive allegiance as our highest good, our highest calling is to serve God. We're reminded of that beginning of the Ten Commandments where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, God has an exclusive right to ourselves. He's purchased us. He owns us by virtue of creation and redemption and his work in us. Uh, we'll be seeing tonight in James 4 that friendship with the world is therefore enmity with God. So some, a lot of uh, writers would call the Lord's Supper a covenant renewal ceremony. That almost as if, you know how sometimes people, if they're, they've been feeling maybe lackadaisical in their marriage for a long time, they might do something like renewing their vows. To just re-remind themselves of, I am, I am truly committed to this. No matter what we've gone through, I am here. The Lord's Supper, every time we partake of it, is a, is a renewing, in a sense, of the vows that have been made in our baptisms to be the Lord's, to serve him, to follow him all the days of our life. And to, we need those constant reminders. Even as if, um, if, if you know, walking by, I'm feeling tempted to sin, to, to look down at that ring and think, no, I am called to an exclusive allegiance, an exclusive purity. The Lord's Supper is this covenant ceremony reminding us of our exclusive allegiance to be the Lord's, our engagement to God. Fifthly, they that worthily communicate also testify and renew their mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body. So there's not just a benefit in the Lord's Supper when we consider our relationship to God, but also our relationship to one another. We are reminded as we partake of the Lord's Supper that this is a family meal. Jesus partook it around a table at dinner with his friends there, his friends who would become his brothers, right? He says, I call you brothers. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers, he says in Hebrews 2. And so this family meal reminds us that we are all connected to the same body, connected to Christ the head. Whether a finger or a fingernail or an elbow, we all have a part, which means we're, we're all of necessity connected to one another. No member is greater or better than another, but we're all one in Christ. And so we're reminded. That's why it's good in that when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, do look around. Don't just look at your own little zone, but look around and be reminded, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my brother, that's my sister, and we serve Christ. He is our God. 
He is our Father in heaven. And we, as Paul says a couple times, are members one of another. That is, we belong to one another. We have obligations and duties of love to one another. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our bonds of mutual love and fellowship that are actually supposed to even surpass the bonds of love in biological families. The bonds we share in Christ are to be the tightest and greatest bonds. Jesus taught such things um, quite often when he talked about um, that one needs to be ready to forsake family for the sake of the kingdom if that be necessary. That the sword of the kingdom might even drive divisions in families, but that one who follows Christ in this life finds a hundred times more fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. That's what he says. These familial bonds are so important. And we do well to be reminded of them when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Because it's not just an individual means of grace. The Lord's Supper isn't something you should add in to spice up your devotional time. It is necessarily a corporate act. You can't have a family dinner by yourself. You need family there. You can't have the Lord's Supper by yourself. You need the family to be there. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we're all partakers of that one bread. Just as all these pieces came from a loaf, so we, though feeling like separate pieces, are truly one. This reminds of, uh, of our connectedness, the family name that we share, Christian, to be like Christ. And that's why the Lord's Supper is a fitting time for relational resolutions, where there's been rifts and damage. It's a time that reminds us of our need for repair and reconciliation. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, we see uh, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Again, we'll get into this in more depth later. But the context is specifically talking about these divisions in the church being manifested at the supper, where some people are being selfish and proud. And the call to discern the body is the call to discern the body, the relationships and the way we're treating one another in the body of Christ. And that our state of being actually one in relationships affects of our ability to partake in this oneness symbol. That if there are rifts in relationships, that mitigates or militates against the oneness that the supper is communicating. That's why it's so serious to be coming to the supper when there's unrepaired relationships within a local body. Because we are called to renew our mutual love and fellowship with each other. Examine our sins against one another. So to summarize, here are uh, the six things uh, written in a simple way of how does the Lord's Supper benefit us? Well, it is given for our spiritual nourishment. It's given for our growth in grace, that is, in our relationship with Christ. It's given to confirm our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. It's given um, as a testimony and a renewal of our thankfulness to God. It's given to testify and to help renew our allegiance to God. And it's given to testify and renewal and renew our mutual love and fellowship with each other. And if I was to summarize further, 
I, could sum- I would summarize it into these three. That in the Lord's Supper, we ought to come to a renewed trust and delight in Christ. As we are reminded of his sacrifice, we trust that it is finished. Sin is done away with. The grave is conquered. And we delight that he would show us such love, that he would show us such grace. So we trust him and delight in him more. But then we're reminded also um, to have a renewed thankfulness to Christ and allegiance to him. That's our response, to give praise and thanks. It's appropriate to sing and to have that allegiance renewed. And lastly, to have a renewed love and fellowship with one another. And if I was to summarize still further, and maybe it's something that could actually stick in your minds, In the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Christ is mine, I am his, and we are ours. That is, Christ belongs to me by virtue of his relationship. I belong to him, and I respond rightly, and we belong to one another. As uh, it says in the uh, Song of Songs, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And what a greater joy, what a greater delight than to consider that Christ is mine and I am his, and we are ours. I'm not alone. We belong to one another. Um, there's, there's an old song that just says, He brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. I am my beloved's, and he is mine, and his banner over me is love. So next time we partake of the Lord's Supper, allow just the love of Christ to wash over you as you're reminded, He gave himself to me. He gave himself for me. Therefore, how could I not give myself to him? How could I not give my all to love and to serve him? And how could we not give ourselves in love for one another? Each of these people that Christ has given himself for, how could we not show the same love and service? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we bless you and thank you for how much you have loved us and that you have given yourself to us, have been committed to us, and that you've done everything necessary to bring us into relationship with you and with the Father through you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the many times you've stirred up our love for Christ and reminded us of Christ's love for us. And we pray for many fruitful partakings of the Lord's Supper. We pray for increased faith, increased trust and delight in Christ, increased thankfulness and allegiance to Christ, and an increased love and fellowship with one another. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, we got, uh, yeah, we got some good time here for questions.